Now, it took a few more weeks before she surrendered to Christ. But to me, that showed me beyond a shadow of a doubt that you cannot deny the sovereignty of God. What does the sovereignty of God tell us? It tells us, no man can come to me except the Father draws him. She had nothing in her that wanted anything to do with God. But God said, Sabina, I want everything to do with you. So today's message is titled, The Aftermath at Philippi. And I, I don't think we want to miss um, these final details by Luke in this chapter. You know, one of the things I like about Luke's writings in, in the Gospel of Luke, plus in the book of Acts, is his attention to detail. Luke was not... Um, an itinerant, he was not an unlearned man, he was a physician um, and was a person of some standing. So when he's writing this, he's writing from a place of intelligence, which is encouraging because it proves that we don't have to check our intelligence at the door to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, because God chooses people of all walks of life and all stripes to join his kingdom. We even see that in this chapter because we see that God brought Lydia, the seller of purple, to himself, and then he brought the Philippian jailer to himself, and just the contrast of those two people and the many people that Paul comes in contact with shows the, the multifaceted and powerful love of our great God. Let's open an order of prayer and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being your children. Lord, we thank you um, for all of that title um, entails us to, and we pray that we would realize as we continue to go through this life that the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. And we think of also the words that Brother Paul wrote for us, um, that it has not even entered into the heart of man the things that the Lord has prepared for them that love him. Lord, it is also my prayer that if there be any here this morning that do not yet love you, that they would glean something here today that would cause them to turn to you. Now, Lord, I pray that the thoughts of my heart would be acceptable to you and that the words of my mouth would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we're talking about the aftermath at Philippi. And so in our first two verses, starting with Acts 16.35, we see a request for Paul to leave the prison, and the broader implication is to leave the city. And we're going to see that he has a very interesting response to that. So let's look at Acts 16, 35 and 36 together. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the surgeons saying, let these men go. And the keeper of the prison told the saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. 
Therefore depart and go in peace. And there's one really interesting thing I found in my research, and that is that these uh, these surgeons that are coming to let Paul go, or delivering this message to let Paul go, they're probably the same people that beat him. And as we go through this passage, Paul is going to point out that there were two things, at least, that happened illegally to him in this situation. First, that he was beaten as a Roman citizen by birth. That was not allowed. And second, that he was not afforded a trial. He was simply put in jail by the word of these men who were mad because he took away their income stream and then he was placed in jail. Who does that remind us of? What did Jesus do one week approximately before he was crucified? He cast out the money changers. He turned over their tables. And he said, you have made my father's house, instead of a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. So he did not shy away from controversy. People who tell you today that Jesus was simply loving in the way that we understand love in 21st century America are wrong. Because Jesus did not get crucified because of warm fuzzies. He got crucified because he was willing to speak the truth in love, but nonetheless speak the whole truth. And the thing is, as we go through this culture that is increasingly more and more godless, we will find that our love for others will be construed as hate because the truth hurts those who have rejected it. That is the reality upon which we are living in these days where we find ourselves. And as I studied this, I came to find out that, there, were, like I said, there was a broader implication than simply leaving the prison. They wanted Paul and Silas to leave the city in secret and to not have to deal with them anymore. This is a note that I found on the website Precept Austin. And it says, Now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent to their policemen, saying, Release the men. Why their change? Were they shaken out of their beds the previous night? Did they see it as an omen, pagans being very superstitious? The jailer may have put in a good word for them. We simply do not know why they had a change of heart. But I was listening to a, a speaker yesterday, and he, one of his suppositions based on his research was that these Romans were very superstitious and that they believed that the earthquake was caused by the gods and they said if, if this earthquake was caused because of these two individuals what worse thing could happen to us if we keep them in our jail and so they simply said uh, we want you to leave we don't want you to have anything to do anymore with what's going on here. They didn't care or didn't perceive what he had done for the Philippian jailer. They didn't think about how they had stayed 
obediently in their cells. They didn't think about how there were no prisoners lost. They were only focused on one thing, and that was getting Paul and Silas out of Dodge as quickly as possible. And we're going to see that Paul does not go along with this. But before we do that, I wanted to draw a parallel to an event in Jesus' life, and that is in Matthew 8, 28 to 34. Matthew 8, 28 to 34. And as we read this passage, if you get to it, please, if you are a gentleman, uh, please stand and read it for us. I want to discuss with you some of the parallels to Paul's situation. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Hebrews, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us to the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they went, so they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened in the demon possessed man. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. So, I want you to notice something here. First of all, Jesus comes de deliberately into the country of, of the Gadarenes. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to meet when he got there. And yet, he steps off the boat when he arrives. He meets these demon-possessed men head-on. The demons immediately know who Jesus is. And they know his power. Because they said, if you're going to cast us out, because they pretty much knew what was coming. But they said, if you're going to cast us out, cast us into the swine. And so again, we see a parallel here because we see Jesus disrupting the monetary livelihood of these pig herders. Now, of course, if they were Jews, they were living in violation because they should not have been herding swine. Perhaps that's why Jesus was willing to cast the demons in there too. But he cast the demons out of these men, and the, demon, the pigs run off the cliff, and the men run to the city, and they don't say... Look at these demon-possessed, these formerly demon-possessed men who are now in their right mind. Come see this miracle that Jesus did. No, instead they come back to Jesus, having reported everything, including the miracle that the demon-possessed men are no longer demon-possessed, and they say to Jesus, leave the region. They had no concern for these two men who were set free. They had no concern for the fact that they were doing the wrong thing by herding swine. All they had concern for was getting Jesus out of the way because he was stifling their potential. 
the earthly potential, the things that are temporal that we talked about earlier. The Pharisees had a similar view of Christ. Remember, they wanted to get rid of Christ. Not because, you notice, not because they really thought that he was lying. You notice they never really accused Jesus of lying. They simply say, he's going to remove our influence and our place in the nation if we don't get rid of it. Their popularity mattered more than their eternal souls. Because they missed the truth. And in the situation of Paul, we have him being followed for days by a demon-possessed girl, which I find that interesting. I wonder if the masters of the girl just couldn't get her to go another direction. But she's following along Paul for several days, and he gets weary of it, and he turns around, and she's she's testifying for them. She says, these are servants of the Most High God. But once again, God doesn't want a demon testifying for him. So Paul turns around and he says, Come out of her. And because he spoke with the authority of Jesus Christ, the demon came out. And again, we have a situation where the livelihood of these men is affected. And so all they care about is that Paul and Silas have affected their livelihood. And so they lie and say that they spoke against Rome and they made up all these lies and they get them put into prison. So I just want to draw the parallel there that, um, you know, remember Jesus said right before he went to heaven, he said, the world will hate you. Why? Because it hated me first. And so that's the situation that Paul and Silas find themselves in. So let's look at the second part of our passage. Um, so they have been, they've been set free but here, but here is Paul's response to that. I mean, most of us on a human level would be like, okay, let's skedaddle, let's get out of here. But that's not what Paul says. So let's look at Acts 16, 37 to 38. Acts 16, 37 to 38, read, But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now they do thrust us out privily, May verily, but let us let them come themselves and fetch us out. Now the Romans were cruel masters, that is for sure. Crucifixion, which which they were known for, was the most barbaric form of torture that you can think of, and Jesus went through it. But even the Romans knew that they had to keep some semblance of of goodwill among the people, and if they were found out to have beaten a Roman who had not gone through trial, they would have been in big political trouble. And so they had to go with their tails between their legs and fetch Paul and Silas out of the prison. I think also, um, from what I uh, have researched, that Paul wanted to make sure that he as a Christian was not accused of a crime that he didn't commit and unjustly treated because it would affect the church at large. And so he was concerned not just with himself, but with the church's future in Philippi. And uh, here's what 
Warren Wearsby said about that in his exposition commentary. He said, it says, Wearsby offers excellent thought on why Paul did not wish to leave Philippi secretly. And he writes, Paul, however, was unwilling to sneak out of town. For that kind of exit would have left the new church under a cloud of suspicion. People would have asked, who were these men? Were they guilty of some crime? Why did they leave so quickly? What do their followers believe? Paul and his associates wanted to leave behind a strong witness of their own integrity, as well as a good testimony for the infant church at Philippi. It was then that Paul made use of his Roman citizenship and boldly challenged the officials on the legality of their treatment. This was not personal revenge, but a desire to give protection and respect for the church. And I think that makes a lot of sense as we consider this, and I think there's application broadly for us here in America today, because I do think that sometimes we suffer for our own sake and act like it's persecution for Christ. But I also love the fact that I live in a land where we have the legal means to protest injustice and to stand for our rights. You know, a lot of times what the godless uh, media and government tells us is illegal, is nowhere near illegal, and if we knew our laws, we could stand with boldness knowing that we actually do have a constitution that protects our rights. And I think we see in this example from Paul, that just as he claimed his Roman citizenship, we can claim our American citizenship and in a godly way pursue our rights. Now, do we, do we sometimes act ungodly in our pursuit of our rights? Absolutely we do. And so we need to make sure that we are always having a mind to pursue truth in a godly manner. What does Paul say? He said, as much as lies with you, be at peace with all men. Paul wasn't seeking to be out of peace with these men, but he was seeking the future peace of his fellow believers because he said, if, if I can assert my rights on this issue, then it will go presumably better for the church from here on out. And so there's a lot that we can, I believe, learn from that. I just have a few passages that I want to look at to expound on Paul's decision here. And um, the first is Proverbs 28.1. Proverbs 28.1. Second is Mark 12.14-17. And third is 1 Peter 4.15-16. Well, let's start with Proverbs 28.1. Paul was bold because he knew that he was in the right. He didn't have to flee and be like, I got to get out of here as soon as possible, so hopefully they don't whip me again. No, he said, I have rights here. I'm going to stay until you bring me out. I think we're going to see in the final section one of the reasons why he did not want to be rushed out of the city because he does have a final errand to do before he leaves. But let's also look at Mark 12, 14 to 17. Mark 12, 14 to 17. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, 
We know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men. But teach the way of God in truth. This law is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, that I may see it. So they brought it. He said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar. Jesus said to them, Render unto Caesar what, it, what the things that are Caesar's and the God is. Do you realize that one of the things that the leader said about Jesus when he went to trial was that he said that we shouldn't pay tribute to Caesar? Even though he never said that, Jesus respected the governing authorities. Remember when the government officials came and, and, and uh, tried went to collect taxes from Peter and Jesus? Jesus didn't say, I don't have to pay taxes. I gave you everything you have. I don't have to pay that. No. What did he do? He sent Peter out. He said, when you go out to catch fish, you'll catch a fish. There'll be a coin in that fish's mouth, and it'll be enough to pay for your taxes and for mine. Jesus never said to disrespect the governing authority. He only said that he would not bow to a governing authority if it meant going against his father's will. He was willing to call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs because that's what they were. He said, your lips profess to know me, but your heart is far from me. He said, what did he say? He said, listen to everything they tell you to do. What they tell you to do do it. But don't follow their example. Because they are hypocrites. That's a very clear distinction. If we see the speed limit on the side of the road, following the speed limit is a good idea. It's something that we should do. Because we want to honor the laws of the land. But if they ever make a law, and I'm not even talking about a mandate, but if they ever make a law saying that um, the name of Jesus is forbidden, we have no choice but to continue to speak the name of Jesus. Because what did Peter and John say? He said, whether we are right in the sight of God and man judge ye, but we can only speak of the things that we have seen and heard. So they went back to the upper room and they prayed that they would declare Jesus more boldly. What did Paul say? My goal in my ministry is to preach Christ and Him crucified. anybody tells you that Paul and another apostle had a different gospel, they're wrong. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul said, if anyone 
preaches another gospel than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Those are harsh words because that's how important it was. And um, so we, uh, that just gives us a lot to consider as we think about the proper role of Christians in our society. Yes, we are not to be of the world, but we are in the world. And as I've often said, the world is waxing worse and worse. But that doesn't mean that Christians need to help facilitate it by being unwilling to speak out the truth. Can we look at the final cross-reference here? 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16. 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16. So Peter is talking about if I suffer because of my own sin there's nothing to be happy about nothing to be proud about. But if I suffer because I'm following the Lord Jesus I can rejoice. What did Jesus say? He said, if you suffer persecution for my name's sake rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That doesn't seem like a, a, a typical response, but that is the response that we are to have. I don't know if you have heard about the new movie that recently came out, Sabina, about Sabina Warbrand, the wife of Richard Warbrand, the co-founders of Voice of the Martyrs. This new movie chronicles their life from atheists who wanted nothing to do with God, <laughs> to people who God reached down and grabbed a hold of, redeemed Jews, who then sought to rescue their brothers and sisters from the Holocaust, and were imprisoned two and three times by the Nazis, and released by God's providence to continue their work. Why? Because God is powerful enough that if you set out to refute who he is, he will reach in and say, I am here, and I love you, and I want you to be mine. There's one particularly powerful scene in that movie where Richard has already made his decision to follow Christ, he tells his wife, I'm going to church today to be baptized, to show my unity with Christ. And she decides that while, she, while he's gone, she's going to drown herself in the bathtub and end her life so that he will know how horrible it was for him to choose Christ over her. And she's laying in the bathtub and she puts her head below the water. 
And as she's sinking below the water, she starts to think, what if he's wrong? What if God is real? And God reached into that bathtub and caused her to go above the water and to gasp for breath. And when he yelled from church, she said, help me understand. Now, it took a few more weeks before she surrendered to Christ. But to me, that showed me beyond a shadow of a doubt that you cannot deny the sovereignty of God. What does the sovereignty of God tell us? It tells us, no man can come to me except the Father draws him. She had nothing in her that wanted anything to do with God. But God said, Sabina, I want everything to do with you. And you know one of the significant things that happened in their life? When they were hedonists and they didn't believe God, they didn't want children. They just wanted pleasure. But nine months after she trusted Christ and they were living in a Christian household, God sent them a son. You think God knows what he's doing? Absolutely he does. Our third point is Paul and Silas leave on their own terms. Acts 16, 39-40. Acts 16, 39-40. Ending the chapter. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them. And departed. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the people that suffer the most are the ones that are able to extend the most comfort? I remember one time, several years ago, a good friend of ours was dying of cancer. She actually was dying of cancer for like 13 years. She'd been told on numerous occasions that she had six months to live, but God kept preserving her and allowed her to see both of her children get married, and that was very precious to her. And I know that was part of what God was doing. But I remember one time I was going to their hometown with a friend and I was going to visit her and I, I sought to be an encouragement to her and I, I pray and I hope that I was but I left that room that day being more encouraged by her I'm sure than she was to me because in the midst of her suffering she was still glorifying God she still knew that God was in control and she trusted him how powerful was it for Paul and Silas? Basically a day after being whipped and uh, mistreated and bound to prison without a trial that they would come into Lydia's house. Lydia, I, I wonder what was going through Lydia's mind because she had come to know the Lord during their ministry there and she had welcomed them into their home. Her home, and then shortly thereafter was when Paul was in prison. But he goes to Lydia's house, 
and he encourages her and the people that are there despite what he had gone through. And I, I really think that suffering does give us a perspective that we wouldn't have otherwise. You know, sometimes people ask me and other people like me if you could walk, if there was a magic pill that would cause you to walk, would you do it? And there may have been a time when I was a struggling teenager when I would say without a doubt. But you know what? The doors of ministry that God has opened for me because of my disability made me say, I don't think I would. Because God has given me everything I need to do the ministry to which he has called me. Remember that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He besought the Lord three times that God would take it away. And each time God said no. But he's still God. He's still right. And he's still One of the things I learned when I was uh, researching more about the Sabina movie, because I reviewed it on my podcast last week, was that Richard and Sabina actually asked God for a cross to bear. Because they knew that that was a mark of a true follower of Christ. That was convicting to me. And I hope to never be the same after hearing that. Jesus said that if we want to follow him, we must take up our cross daily and follow him. And what a wonderful truth it is that following him means that he'll be there every step of the way. He never left Richard and Sabina. They were given a pen and paper to write out the names of the people that were working with them so they could expose them. He said, you can go home if you expose the people you're working with. And instead, they wrote out psalms about the power of God. And there was a really interesting scene in the movie where the one a superior officer was looking at the page and he couldn't read their writing. Apparently he couldn't read whatever the Romanian tongue was. So he asked one of his subordinates to read it to him. And he starts reading about how God is a redeemer. And of course the superior officer immediately snatches it and crinkles it up and throws it away he doesn't want to hear that about God. But the gospel was going forth even when they were in prison. And that's what we see with the Apostle Paul. The, we see a, another change in narrative at the beginning of Acts 17, which seems to suggest 
that Luke was left in Philippi for some time because it goes from a we narrative to a they. So perhaps Luke was left to continue encouraging the saints. Can we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 1-3? 1 Thessalonians 2, 1-3. So Paul is talking about his experience in Philippi and he said that we continued to share the truth even though we went through this suffering. And then I just wanted to read quickly from Acts 14, 21 and 22. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. And I really like the way that Paul encourages everyone he comes in contact with. Almost every one of his epistles starts with, I thank God always for you in my prayers. What a wonderful truth that is. And now I close with this. Christians are urged to provoke one another unto love and to good works. The word provoke means to arouse, incite, and hearten. Is it not a most worthy and ambition and privilege to awaken and inspire others to live righteously and godly in this present world? Few are aware of how much failure is simply due to the lack of incentive and courage or the loss of spirit. When the heart goes out of a person, there is no longer any vision to quicken, to cheer, to lead. So it is Christian to hearten and provoke others onto loving good works. Singing to the merry ring of his trowel, a break a bricklayer aroused Carlyle from the stupor of despondency and provoked him to write the second volume of his French Revolution, which had been destroyed, which had been destroyed in the manuscript. A line quoted from the New Testament and a pat on the head changed the stupid shy lad Walter Scott and kindled in his heart a quenchless flame. A kiss from his mother at the, at the psychological moment made Benjamin West a painter. Through a seasonable word, a mother's prayer, a friendly grasp of the hand, the memory of a face often turned out to be. Thus, a seasonable word, a mother's prayer, a friendly grasp of the hand, the memory of a face often turn out to be provoking destiny-making acts. You never know what little act you may do that would encourage the saints around you to be provoked onto good works. And I think that's what Paul was doing with Lydia's household was, even though we were in prison, even though we were beaten wrongly, God is still on the throne. We are still ministering in his name. And there's still hope only in one name. That's the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we've had to consider these thoughts from Acts chapter 16 as we finish this chapter. 
Lord, thank you for this journey through this wonderful book. Thank you for Dr. Luke who wrote it down for us. What a wonderful excitement that will be to meet him and others like him in heaven. I pray that if there be any here that has not come to know the life-changing power of the Lord Jesus, that they would seek to do that today before their head hits the pillow. And I pray for the rest of these people, the saints of Holland Gospel Chapel, that you would lead them forth from this place with your power to go and change the world for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.